This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 14, dated July 9th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I am pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about Asa, king of Judah. Is it possible to be blessed too much? There's every reason to think the answer is yes, and that we should take warning. I've been reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards is often cast as believing in a God searching for opportunities to destroy us. The truth and Edwards' actual message are quite different. I've been hearing work-life balance is a myth. Kudos to Time Magazine for publishing something that the Bible's been teaching us all along. I've been playing Newton. If the game or God sets you up for success, it would be tragic not to take proper advantage. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. What would happen if you got everything you asked for? How would you respond to that? And of course, we're usually talking about physical things when we talk about these kind of dream scenarios, right? We're talking about health and, and prosperity and family stability and political security and all that kind of thing. What if you got all of it? Every single thing that you asked God for, you got how would you respond? Well, I would like to think that we would give thanks first. That's the appropriate response, of course. And then we would celebrate. And in fact, why not? Why wouldn't we celebrate? There's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible cautions us about such things. The Bible gives us one example after another, and probably we could supply some from our own experiences as well, of people who did seem like they were inordinately blessed blessed over and over again, more than their contemporaries, more than their peers, and who responded to that showering of blessings by forgetting about God or even turning on God. Asa is an example of this. The king of Judah who started his life as a king in fine fashion, did tremendous, tremendous things in God's name, who was encouraged by the prophets, by God through the prophets to stay, uh, stay the course, to stay faithful. God is with you when you are with him. If you eagerly seek for him, he will let you find him, the text says. And Asa did. Asa sought after God. And because of that, he was blessed and blessed again. Military success, wealth, all, all the rest of it. The nation was doing great. Asa was doing great. And then after a, an extended time of peace... He saw war on the horizon, and he did not turn to God. He turned to foreigners instead. In fact, he took money out of the nation's treasury, which is to say the temple treasury, which is to say God, to finance this foreign alliance, to finance this entanglement with a foreign power. Instead of trusting in God, the God who had been his deliverer over a million, arm, a million strong army from the Ethiopians, he loses his faith. And when he is called on it by the prophet, when the prophet accuses him of not trusting in God, he has the prophet thrown in prison. 
You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. What a sad and strange development. And by the way, not the only one by any stretch of the imagination in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's almost chronic. These good kings who start out well and toward the end of their life, they just lose their faith. They start going their own way instead. We see it over and over again. Maybe there's just something about us that reacts poorly to blessings. Maybe God knows what he's doing when he doesn't give us absolutely everything. Because look at what happens when he does give people absolutely everything. Solomon had absolutely everything and, and practically lost his faith entirely. Although it, Ecclesiastes seems to indicate he found it back again. Surely God knows what's best for us. And by withholding some blessings, perhaps he is reminding us that he is still there, that we do still need him. And lessening, perhaps, a little bit of the temptation to think that we got here on our own, that we don't need God anymore. I think that this reaction of Asa and the reaction we see in, in our own lives, perhaps, and in the lives of others, certainly, toward prosperity, toward blessings, is an indication that at our core, we think that God is ultimately in charge of giving us stuff. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is asking him to give us stuff. We have ample evidence in the scriptures that that is not the case. We have one example after another of prayer, Old and New Testament alike, inspired prayer, uh, prayer uh, from the heart, prayer from the Lord himself. The model prayer that he gives us does in fact have one line and only one with regard to physical blessings. And that one line is for daily bread. It's not that your 401k become more valuable or any such thing as that. Daily bread, that's it. And the rest of it is praising God and assistance for others and helping us in our own moral struggles to try to be more like God wants us to be, to forgive others as God has forgiven us, that sort of thing. That's what prayer is at its core. It's not just asking for things, although there that is appropriate. You should be asking God for things. That's, that's part of our walk with him, that we trust in him as our giver of every good and perfect gift. But that being said, it's not just a matter of God giving us things. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we see faithful people losing their faith. After they receive these things, God answers their, their prayer. He saves them from the plane crash, or he saves them from the earthquake, or he saves them from whatever other kind of short-term calamity may be going on here. The bank does not, in fact, foreclose on the house or whatever. And we thank God and we celebrate, yay. And then it's over. We forget about God because we don't see God as the solution anymore, because we don't see the problem anymore. And in fact, Ace is an indication of if and when solution or problems do come up in the future, God even ceases to be a solution to the problems. When we see Asa getting sick toward the end of his life, as an ailment in his feet, he did not consult God. He consulted doctors and said, well, we're not opposed to consulting doctors. But how could this man of faith get to the point where he does not pray to God for healing in his dark hour after God had done so much for him. It's because he allowed his faith to deteriorate. He forgot about God during these good times so that when the bad times came, he didn't find the inclination to reach out for God again. We've talked in other uh, spots in this, in this podcast about God being the God of the mountains and the God of the valleys. We need to remember him in the mountains so that he will still be with us in the valleys. We need to remember him in the good times and trust that he is, in fact, there for us. 
And maybe part of the solution here is to see him not just as the giver of every good and perfect gift, but even more than that, the one who guides us, the one who shepherds us, the one who is taking us through life. And in part, by withholding certain things from us. I wonder how Solomon felt if he was compiling the entire book of Proverbs and he got to Agur's words that we have recorded in Proverbs 30 verse 8, where Agur said, give me neither poverty nor riches. That's what Agur wanted. How does Solomon respond to that? Because he, he got riches and his riches hurt him tremendously, in fact. There's every indication to think that Solomon was weaker in his faith, if anything, than stronger. Because he lost his way. Of course, his wives didn't help with that. But that's another chapter in that same story. What we need to do as the people of God is to trust in God. To trust in his salvation. And to believe that he is, in fact, blessing us. And to give him all the praise when we do receive the blessings. And when we don't receive the blessings. Let's see that also as his hand. That God is ultimately more concerned about our salvation than any kind of short-term problem that we may have. Yes, go to him with the short-term problems, but whether we get our requests or do not get our requests, make sure that we continue to praise and honor the God who is blessing us with everything that we have, and especially blessing us with everything in Jesus. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did to his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be described to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning. But that God's hand has held you up. Wow. Next time I'm accused of being a hellfire and brimstone preacher, I will refer them to Jonathan Edwards. That is some serious stuff. That is, of course, from his classic sermon, preached first in 1741, July 8th of that year, in Enfield, Connecticut, as part of this great awakening movement that we touched on last week. Jonathan Edwards was a, a hard-bitten Calvinist, one who believed in heaven and who definitely believed in hell and was determined to save his parishioners as best he could. And I have my doctrinal issues with, with Mr. Edwards and his take on, on things regarding grace and forgiveness and free will and, and such things as that. But let's try to play fair a little bit with Jonathan Edwards here. The text that we read just from that sermon there, Sinners in the Hands, in the hands of an Angry God, almost certainly his most famous work, what he's remembered for the most. That's the section that we remember, the one that grabs our attention, that he's, God is dangling us over the fire like a, a spider at the end of a, of a strand of spider web, ready to drop us at any moment. But if you read the context, this is not a bitter, vengeful God who hates us and who's looking for an opportunity to destroy us. It's very much the opposite. Edward's point, and it's a valid point, it's a Bible point, 
is that God is not, in fact, willing that any should perish, that he is trying to save us from hellfire. He is not just threatening us with hell. He is taking us out of hell. He is protecting us from hell, giving us opportunity after opportunity in this world to repent. That's what Second Peter 3, verse uh, verse. 7 through 9 talks about how he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't know. I would love to have a conversation with Jonathan Edwards exactly how that works in the mind of a Calvinist. But nevertheless, clearly the Bible message is God wants you to be saved. And he has given you opportunities to be saved. And so the call goes out. The gospel call goes out to bring sinners into the fold to save you from your sins. We are absolutely saved by grace. There's no question about that. The text says in, Gal- in uh, Ephesians, rather, chapter 2 and verse number 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And and that's oftentimes where we quit reading. There are verse number 9. But look at verse number 10 in that same context. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, he's not saying here that we're going to be saved by our works, but he is saying, Paul the the Apostle is, is saying that we are saved so that we can participate in a pattern of good works. The good works are a necessary part, an inevitable part, of the salvation process. God didn't save us just so that we could be saved. He saved us so we could be different kind of people. He empowers us to be different kind of people, and that's why he brings grace into our lives. That grace is keeping us out of health hour. That grace is giving us an opportunity to be better, stronger, more spiritual, more godly than we were in times past. God is permitting us to engage in this behavior and giving us time and opportunity to do exactly that. I've long said that we really re- ought to read the context of Ephesians chapter 2 in the uh, presence of Philippians chapter 2. That Paul goes on, the same Paul uh, goes on to write in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, and 13, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as uh, not as in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What he's saying there is that we, and he's writing to Christians here. He's not talking about alien sinners. He's talking about people who've been bought by the blood of Christ, who've been baptized in water for remission of sins, who call themselves Christians every day of their lives. These ones after the fact, during their relationship with God, are told to continue to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, realizing who God is, what God expects out of us, realizing that it is a tremendous and daunting responsibility to live our lives as Christians, and that we are going to have to exert ourselves tremendously with regard to that. God chooses not to destroy us because he loves us more than we love the spider more than we love the serpent, uh, to which uh, Mr. Edwards alluded in his sermon. We wouldn't have any hesitation destroying the spider because we don't love the spider. God loves us, though, and so he very much hesitates before destroying us. If it comes to that, it comes to that. But he extends grace to us and gives us opportunity and opportunity again to repent, to make our lives right with him as much as we possibly can. This power that God gives us, we're told to will, it's God's uh, pleasure. He says to, it says to uh, will, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is transforming us through the power of Jesus. He is making us over, not apart from our free will, but in harmony with our free will. As we work out 
our own salvation. This is God's plan working in us. This is the gospel transforming us. This is why we do not boast about our works because it's not ultimately our works that are doing this. It's God. It's God's power. It's God's transformative power that we find in Jesus. We don't get any of the credit for this. The analogy that I always use is that of a life preserver. Uh, God throws grace out into the water and we struggle out there and we find it and we grab hold of it and somehow we maintain hold of it and we're pulled to the surface. We're pulled to safety. But we don't give ourselves credit for that. We give God the credit for that. He's the one who prepared salvation. He's the one who extended salvation. And he gave us an opportunity to be saved. That's what grace is. It is up to us to put ourselves in the path of grace. And then having done so, to keep ourselves in the path of grace and realize it is not going to be an easy thing. It's going to be a challenge every single day of our lives. We will, in fact, have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And the more we fear and tremble, the more we appreciate the negative aspects of God's character, the terrifying aspects of God's character, and the more we live in the true fear of God, the more inclined we are going to be to maintain that proper relationship with him. And then throw on top of that, this excited anticipation of heavenly glory that's waiting in a positive sense for the people of God. That just makes it all the more necessary and all the more advantageous for us to take advantage of grace while we still can. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Time Magazine, June 6, 2019. I don't read Time Magazine much anymore, but an article found its way to my laptop via the internet. It grabbed my attention. An article written by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. And the thesis was that work-life balance, as we typically refer to it in our American society, is a, is a myth. That it's a mistaken notion that we are wasting our time and energy trying to pursue work-life balance. After all, there's no such thing in our culture as play-life balance or sleep-life balance or food-life balance or anything like that. Work is part of life and should be seen as part of life. And when we try to distinguish between work and life, what we're essentially saying is that work is by its very nature unhappy, unpleasant, unfortunate. That it's something that we endure so that we can get to the business of life. And that is a very unbiblical approach to the concept of work. I don't know what kind of faith background the authors have, if any. But I do know that the Bible has said from the very beginning, and I mean the very beginning, from Genesis 2.16, that work is a part of the daily life of human beings. And this is before the fall. All the way back to the beginning, we are told that we are to be busy in this life. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, that we need a work-life balance in the sense that we need to appreciate the value and the importance of work in our life. I fear that we have created a culture in our society when we, where we work when we absolutely have to for as little as we possibly can, get out of it much of it as we possibly can, 
and and uh, retire as quickly as we possibly can. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with taking vacation days or taking retirement or any such thing as that. But if history and personal experience has told us anything, it is that idle hands are in fact the devil's tools. God knows that we need to be busy. And one of the best things that we can do is some kind of productive labor where we can serve our family, serve our society, and certainly labor in the Lord where we're serving him and his interests. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse number 7 and following certainly speaks to this notion. Solomon writes here, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which she has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil which you have labored, in which you have labored under the Lord, under the sun. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. What he's saying there is that if it is our lot in life to work, then there's no reason not to make the best out of it. Those who watch the video feed of my podcast have probably noticed a little sign uh, above my shoulder, and hopefully you can make it out. Whoops where uh, it's given to me by, by, by my wife from a visit to Magnolia Farms in Waco, Texas. Those who, uh, who know the show Fixer Upper know what we're talking about here. And it simply says, do good work. I see that sign every day when I come into my office. It is a, a vital part of my life. There are times when I enjoy my work, and there are times that I don't necessarily enjoy my work quite so much. But hopefully every day I show up with an attitude of work where I want to work. I want to do my best. And I have found that when I have an attitude of work, when I have an attitude of trying to work and rejoicing in the opportunity to work, that the joy to a certain degree is going to naturally follow. You rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4 verse 4. When we allow ourselves to rejoice, when we realize that it is not a drudgery to live our lives, it is a joy to live our lives. And there are hard parts and there are not quite so hard parts. There are happy times and there are sorrowful times, but all of it is a blessing from God. Ecclesiastes tells us that certainly over and over again, that all the times that God gives us have their time and place. And they're all focused or should be at least focused on pointing our attention toward the God who blesses us with all of it, who gives us blessings and burdens, who gives us work and play, joy and sorrow. And allows us through all of it to see his hand, to see him working through us and with us, trying to get us to this better place. I think that most of it, and the, the authors indicate this in the, in the article, most of it is simply a matter of motivation. They had some interesting statistics, and, and this is what they say about their data. I don't know how reliable it is or how expansive their research was, but they claim that 73% of the respondents to their research indicated they did in fact have the freedom to modify their job. 73%, that's pretty good. Probably research done in America, uh, land of the free, et cetera, et cetera. But the, it also showed that only 18% of the respondents actually did try to change their job. There's a pretty big delta there but between the two. 73% have the opportunity to change their job or feel like they do. Only 8%, 18% actually do try to change their job. What that sounds like to me is we like complaining about things. The job is bad enough for us to fuss about, but it's not bad enough for us to actually work to change things. Like 
Mark Twain used to say about the weather, right? Everybody's complaining about it. Nobody's doing anything about it. That's the way it is with work. If we try to find something to complain about, we will find it. There's no question about that. Any job that you have, you'll have the opportunity to complain if you want to complain. On the other hand, if you want to find joy, if you want to find peace, if you want to find purpose, you can find that too. There have been people working in much, much situ worse situations than your situation that you're in right now that you may be complaining about, that I may be complaining about. People who have found their joy, who have found their purpose, who have found their faith. And certainly if anybody can do this, it would be a Christian. Certainly God can and God will empower us to deal with the circumstances of life, to find a way to give him the glory, no matter whether they're good days or bad days, whether it's sunshine or rain. There's always going to be an opportunity for us to join in the work that God has given us to do, whether it's carnal work for physical things or certainly spiritual work for spiritual things. There is always going to be the opportunity for us to rejoice, for us to find purpose, to find peace, to find if you will, that balance. Work does have its place. Let it have its place and take joy in that place. And then after your work is over, you can find joy in other places. And ultimately, finally, of course, for the child of God, we have confidence through hope and faith in Jesus Christ that we will be delivered from all of this. And the labor that we did here in the Lord is not going to be found in vain in the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We're not wasting our time here. So let's work for the Lord while time still remains. Night's coming when no man can work. Jesus told us that in John 9 verse 4. So let's work and work with a smile. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But... If you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. I actually beat my wife Tracy in a game of Newton recently. Yay me. You don't care. Obviously you don't care. Tracy doesn't care. I barely care. Uh, believe me, if I played games for the for the joy of winning exclusively, I would play a lot fewer games. And I certainly wouldn't play games like Newton. Newton is a game that rewards a lot of things that I don't do very well. Long-term thinking, layered thinking, strategic planning, all kinds of things like that. Newton is a game in which you are a, an emerging scholar. You are learning about what it is to be an intelligent, you know, professorial type person in Isaac Newton's world and it means you're traveling all over the world and seeing important sites and you're reading important books and you're acquiring certain scientific knowledge and you are building up your library and various things like that supposedly you know, whatever it's it's one of these themeless type games that you just accept it because the the rules say this is what you're doing okay fine it's whatever we're doing what basically you're doing is you're trying to get good at this area and that area and, and a little bit of everything, but especially really good at maybe one or two things and building up a lot of points and the one who has the most points at the end wins. And Newton is great because like we were talking about earlier, an earlier podcast with regard to the voyages of Marco Polo, there is a little asymmetry built into the game, which I chose to ignore the first couple of times because I would rather play the game some idiotic way. But what it basically does is every player in the game is 
better than anybody else at a particular aspect of of the game. Maybe it's work, maybe it's studies, maybe it's travel, whatever it happens to be. And you have an advantage there. You do that better than anybody else in the game does. And if you play to your advantage, you give yourself a chance to win. If you do not play to your advantage, you're pretty much setting yourself up for, for failure. And that's uh, what I had been doing in this particular game. Well, okay, if, if I'm better at this, then I'll do that a lot. And I did that a lot, and it turned out very well for me. I wound up winning. How about that? Life will give you opportunities to succeed. God will give you opportunities to su succeed if you're open to them, if you go in his way instead of, of your own way necessarily. That can be a difficult chore for us. We've discussed this kind of concept in, in other contexts where we would rather do things our way and fail than do things in God's way and succeed, uh, unfortunately. I, I was reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4 where everybody has a gift. Everybody has an opportunity. Verse number uh, 10 and 11 as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And usually we talk about the first one. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That's great. But he goes on. He says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of us have an opportunity to serve wherever God places us. And if we take advantage of the opportunity that is ours, if we take advantage of the skills or the, the opportunities or the, the resources, whatever, that God gives us, then we have a chance to succeed. And all of us are advantaged in one fashion or another. And certainly we as Americans in the 21st century are advantaged just beyond compare. What a tragedy it would be if God gives us this advantage and empowers us to succeed and we choose to ignore the things that God has given us and we wind up failing instead. Why would we want to do that? Surely we wouldn't want to do that, and yet we do do that oftentimes. We choose our own path instead of God's way. It's going to be hard enough to please God God's way. It's going to be hard enough to, to accomplish his will when we do things his way. He goes on to say the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 18 and 19. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, uh, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. He's not saying you're just going to, if you get into heaven, you're just going to squeeze under the gates barely as it's slamming down behind you. That, that's not the point here. The point is, and we keep coming back to this idea of work. We keep coming back to this idea of, of effort and labor this week, seems like. What he's saying is that if you get into heaven, if you get into a pleasing relationship with God, it's going to be because you tried to. You're not going to do it on accident. You're going to have to exert yourself. You're going to have to make good choices. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to be disciplined. Uh, these things don't happen on accident. You're going to have to play the game, as it were, if you'll pardon the analogy, in, in a good way, in an intelligent way, in a thoughtful way. If you do that, if you do it in God's way, if you do take advantage of the, of the situation that God has placed you in, then maybe you have a good chance to succeed. And what a terrifying prospect it is to not do that, to look at all these tremendous advantages that are ours, these, these wonderful, wonderful blessings that are ours, that God has given us, that God didn't have to give us, but that he did give us, then to squander the opportunity that's given to us, that would just be horrifying, surely. Hebrews chapter 12, I'll talk about this in verse number 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice, acceptable service with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. That's a, a terrifying image. That's a Bible image. 
going back to Jonathan Edwards, we're overlapping it a little bit this week, seems like. This is biblical. This is what God says about himself. It's not appropriate for us to, to take issue with that. Our God is a consuming fire, and we, by the grace of God, have been spared that. Because Jesus has died on the cross and because we have access to grace through his blood, we can avoid that horror show. We can avoid all the, the, the penalties, the, the punishment that was coming and that is coming to the wicked. doesn't have to be ours, but it might be ours. There's, there's ample evidence, uh, Old and New Testament alike. The Galatian brethren, some of them had fallen from grace. Chapter 5, verse 4 tells us that. They were ceasing to partake in spiritual things because they no longer considered Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Let's not let that happen to us. Let's continue to devote ourselves to his work, to his things, and take advantage of these blessings that are ours. Take advantage of the life that he has given to us. If we have easy access to the Bible, let's read the Bible. If we have easy access to, to worship assemblies and, and gatherings, let's take advantage of that. Let's worship. Let's gather. Let's spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ. What a tremendous blessing it is to be able to do this. And far too often what we wind up doing is we become lethargic, we become complacent like Asa was. We talked about him before where we've had so much success that we forget what it took to become successful. God is going to require us to continue to exert ourselves, to push toward the finish so that in the end we can be found faithful. Not that we can have been faithful at some point in our life, but that we will end the story on God's side of the ledger. So we'll be able to say with Paul, we've fought the good fight, we've finished the course, we've kept the faith. That needs to be our story. And if we persevere, if we play according to the rules, if we push forward, if we try, if we exert ourselves, always trusting in God, of course, always relying upon his grace and praying for forgiveness and patience and mercy, we can have confidence at the end of this story. We will, in fact, be victorious. God will assure us of that. Not because of who we are, but because of what he is. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more Citizens of Heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.